All right. Well, for the uh, for those online, I'll just mention I was having trouble finding my presentation remote. Never did figure out where that thing went. Uh, so I'll step away from the camera here and there to um, get this to progress to the next point. And so I'll do that um, here at the start. I'm going to progress forward to our title slide. So I might do some more skipping than normal, just so I don't have to go back over there as often. So instead of like putting up a point at a time, I might put up all the points on a particular slide. That's, by the way, for the sake of the people in the room. Online, um, I don't have the ability to advance the points one at a time. So you just see them all at once anyways. Uh, but I'll go ahead and do that. And so uh, I'll skip over the title slides uh, that we have here. Where I'll mention them first before I head over there that we're in a series on theology, which is just basic Bible teachings or Bible doctrines, uh, which is all the word doctrine means, is teachings. And we've started off with God himself and learning uh, certain teachings about God in the Bible. Um, so <coughs> we're in a third week of looking at God's character or his attributes. And so we've covered a number of his attributes. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and advance the slide uh, to get up uh, to the attributes that we're going to be looking at next. So give me uh, just a moment as we do this. I'll keep talking as we're going um, on this. And come on, you can do it, actually. All right, looks like I think I got the presentation going before the projector officially connected. And let me try reconnecting it there. It wouldn't, it wouldn't let me advance, so... Oftentimes, that's what happens. Um, that's uh, one. Okay. There we go. All right. So now we got it set there. And you can see on this uh, particular uh, slide that we have up, this would be uh, the slide uh, for the sake of those writing the media. Uh, the first point is the word omni. Let me make sure I get this right. Yeah. Omnipresence. Okay, um, so on this slide, we've already covered them uh, going down to the word holiness, which will be the next one that we're going to look at uh, this morning. But in looking at the attributes of God, we've seen already that God is everywhere present, the first one. Uh, he is not physical. <clears throat> he does not have a physical body. He is spirit. <clears throat> um, he's omniscient, um, knows all things, has all wisdom and truth, and he's a faithful God, one who is good loving, merciful, gracious, and patient. And these kind of attributes, as we study them, um, one of the things that I think will be a benefit uh, to us, and whether you already understood these or not, we're reminded of who God is himself. We get to know him better. And I think one of the uh, greatest benefits of it is trust, um, that we can trust God. Uh, so when God is doing things in our lives, we can still trust him. You know, like Christians in Ukraine, can they trust God when he's allowing all this to happen? Like, what kind of God am I serving here? One that would allow all this war and all this uh, death. Uh, some people will question God that way. Um, I think oftentimes, um, although I can't say it's always this way, I mean, I, I, you know, you get into the minds of people, you know, maybe it's a little dangerous for me trying to speculate exactly what their thinking process is, especially when I don't even know who I'm talking about. Um, but I, I do believe that many times... It can be wrong thinking about how God operates and who he is himself. 
a, a little side book on this that we're not getting into right now, though I did cover this book in a Wednesday night Bible study series about, uh, well, just right before COVID. So I, COVID's been around for two years now, so I guess it was two, three years ago, four years ago, somewhere in that range. And it's a book called Not By Chance, Learning to Trust a Sovereign God, uh, written by um, Talbert, is his last name, uh, Leighton Talbert. And so it's actually, um, I've, I found the book very encouraging and very helpful. Um, it really just goes through the Bible and lays out through a lot of the Bible accounts and stories that are in there, demonstrates how sovereign God operates in this sinful world. And, and you, you know, I think the more we understand that, the more we see that God is being consistent with his own character and he's doing what's right even though we as people sometimes want to question that. And so learning to trust a sovereign God, the subtitle of that book, well, I'm hoping that's one of the things that we uh, do in this. Um, I, I doubt that all of us, in fact, let me back that up. I doubt that any of us trust God um, fully like we should. So I, I think we all have room for improvement. We, we sometimes wonder or question and um, I think it's going to be that way with all of us having a sin nature that's not eradicated yet, that we're going to have struggles trusting God sometimes. <clears throat> and sometimes it happens when something really big comes up uh, that feels negative. Uh, and then um, if we're not grounded with who God is, and uh, including his character that we're going over, and, and learning that he's a trustworthy God even in the midst of a sinful world where there's a lot of problems, uh, then perhaps we can begin to question him at that point. Okay, um, so anyways, uh, we'll continue with our uh, characteristics here, and we'll come to our next one on the slide, uh, holiness. Now, I'm looking back when I originally created this slide. I think I would have liked to put righteousness and justice on a separate line from holiness. Now, for sake of space, kind of group some of these uh, together. Uh, righteousness, righteousness and justice go together really well, and they follow on the heels of holiness, so it's not like they're incompatible. Um, but they're not, I don't know if I, if, if I have a way of saying that they're all in a, a category together. But then again, I guess the previous point, um, I'm not necessarily trying to suggest that those five things are all basically the same thing. Um, but are just different aspects of things that are true about God. He's a good God. He, he's loving, merciful, patient, and gracious. Um, all right, what about holiness? All right, I think a, a good way to uh, describe holiness um, is in terms of uh, one of the commentators I'm looking at. He uh, said this, uh, describing holiness, separated from sin, uh, in regards to God's holiness, by the way, separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. Now, we're told to be holy because God is holy. Well, that doesn't mean separated from sin and seeking, uh, and seeking our own honor. <laughs> so obviously we'd be seeking God's honor. But from God's perspective, that's what it's about. The word separation, um, I think if we're trying to remember and keep straight in our mind what it means to be holy, um, the word separation uh, is a good word uh, to help describe that. <clears throat> and so sometimes when I've uh, described this, I don't know if I've done this in Sunday school or not. I think I've um, said this in chapel with kids at school. Um, it's 
but it's kind of a vivid way um, to imagine why sometimes separation would be important. I, I'm thinking, um, in fact, I'll let, you, um, I'll let you develop a mental image that you design based upon your own tastes. What's your favorite food? Okay, now imagine a plate with that dish on it, and it's prepared perfectly. It's even, now I'm not a big on how you present the food, but let's just say it's like at a fancy restaurant. I don't know, maybe they drizzled things across the plate to decorate it, they put a little garnish on top or whatever. I mean, whatever your favorite food is, it might even be a dessert or an appetizer, it's prepared perfectly. It looks as good as it gets. It's been prepared with the best ingredients. It's, it's just the way you like it. So you're looking at that. So now let me ask this. <clears throat> I'm going to take an eyedropper, you know, one of these little squeeze things, squeeze a little bulb and draw. I'm going to go to the toilet and get a little toilet water. Okay. How many drops of water are acceptable for me to put onto that food? The, the answer is zero. Now, now what if I... Um, I convince you that I have completely sanitized that toilet. Okay, and now I'll get water from it. How many drops of water are acceptable to put onto that food? <laughs> We'd probably still say none. That which is not good, or even possibly not good, because we all know no matter how much you clean that, you're not 100% sure you got it all. Um, in fact, if it was a brand new toilet, um, I'm not even... <laughs> I still think, just the fact it's a toilet, I'm not sure I'd even want a drop of water there, even if I felt like I could drink out of it. I wouldn't. Um, so it's like one drop would contaminate. So if someone actually did that, went over to the toilet, took a drop, no matter how good that looked and how sure I was that it was going to taste, and even if I was convinced that I wouldn't actually taste the drop of water on there, just knowing it's there, I'd be like, oh, I think I'm going to have to pass. <laughs> I'm not going to eat a plate of food with a drop of toilet water on there. You know, the, the original question was how many drops? And you know, it's not like, okay, well, I'll tolerate 15 drops, but you know, you go to a quarter cup now, it's just too much. And no, it'd just be one. <clears throat> and uh, that's, I think that's along the lines of holiness, uh, to, to be separated from that which would cause uh, the thing not to be holy anymore. Uh, there's things that would contaminate or um, would cause uh, to be less. Um, a word defiles a good word. Um, so things that are defiled are, are made worse in some way. And Leviticus chapter 11 verse 44 uses the word defile in it uh, to describe, I think, this concept of holiness. So Leviticus 11:44 starts off by saying, For I am the Lord your God. Okay. Ye shall therefore, because I am the Lord your God, Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves. Okay, that word sanctify is set, set yourself apart. Okay, that's what the word sanctify refers to. Okay, you shall sanctify yourselves, set yourselves apart, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Okay, so I am set apart from that which would defile my character and defile who I am. I'm set apart. I am holy. You sanctify yourselves. And be holy also, because I'm your, I'm your God. I want you to align up with my values and, and who I am. But then he goes on to say this, Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Of course, that you know, speaks some to uh, the Jewish law, perhaps the dietary restrictions and things. The Jews were allowed only to eat certain things. Some things were considered 
that they would defile them. Sometimes defile them ceremonially uh, under the Jewish law. I think some of them uh, perhaps um, were given for, um, uh, for perhaps health benefits, uh, but I don't think that was the primary thing. But I've heard some uh, point out uh, that a number of the dietary restrictions the Jews had actually had health benefits uh, to them, especially when you're in an area that maybe they, they don't understand certain ways of preparing food such that you don't get sick or get parasites or things like that. Um, yeah. But the Bible doesn't actually focus on that uh, that I'm aware of. So even if there are health benefits to them, that's not really the point the Bible points out in the Jewish dietary restrictions that they had. Um, a, a lot of, I think, what they had was things that set them apart as special, um, such as uh, even something like circumcision. They were set apart as the chosen people of God. That was something that the heathen nations around them didn't do. So it kind of marked them as different um, on that or... Uh, sometimes even set apart for some special service, uh, such as a Nazarite vow. And there you might be thinking, why does Samson have long hair? Like, what's that about? Because that's not really natural. The New Testament says, does not nature teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame to him? Why does Samson have long hair? Oh, he's, oh a Nazarite vow. Okay, well, that kind of makes him stand out a little bit. Why won't Samson have anything to do with grapes. Oh, a Nazarite vow. He's kind of set apart, something special, something different. Uh, Samuel um, kind of set apart, something different about him. Uh, some different men were like that, where they had you know, special vows. Okay? But all of us are to be holy, set apart. So that which would not be acceptable in God's presence isn't really supposed to be that way. All right, well, that thought will continue to develop as we go, go but uh, this is, a, uh, of course, a huge attribute of God as far as Christians are concerned because we're asked to, to do this, to, to set ourselves apart such that we would be acceptable to God. In fact, Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 uh, mentions this when Paul says, I beg of you, I beseech you, brothers and sisters in Christ, Present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, not your, wow, extraordinary, like, wow, there's actually a Christian, that Christian actually tries to be holy? Whoa, that's so unusual. No, it's your reasonable service, not your unusually, you know, like, wow, you really sacrificed and went over the top as a Christian. No, 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 regular, reasonable uh, what the average Christian should look like. And so it's your reasonable service. So therefore, verse 2 of Romans 12, be not conformed to this world. So don't, don't be shaped by it or take on maybe the worldview. The, um, we, we take on, I'm trying to think of uh, <clears throat> what it is, the, the cosmos, the world philosophy, the system uh, that's talked about in the Bible. Don't be conformed to the world. Transform by the renewing of your mind. So we need to be uh, acceptable to God. So that living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1 and 2, uh, speaks of that. And so this is a big deal uh, for us as Christians that um, we actually have a relationship with God where we recognize God is holy. He has separated himself 
from that which would contaminate him and would be inconsistent with who he is and therefore completely unacceptable to him that we would desire to also be holy and we would want to separate from that which would be inconsistent with our relationship with him. All right, so now we'll go into the next uh, two after holiness, righteousness and justice. Well, in the Bible, there's really only one concept here. At one point, I thought about looking this up, but I never got around to it, and that is looking up in a Spanish translation. I was trying to remember, there's a verse in uh, the Bible that in the English often says that a person's a righteous man, and in the Spanish, they don't use the word righteous. Uh, They call him a just man or the just one. I think the Spanish word is el justo, J-U-S-T-O, the just one. And I thought about sharing that, and now I'm just sharing it with you verbally instead of finding a way to get it on the slide, um, that the two concepts are the same. Uh, To be righteous is to be just. Justice and righteousness are intertwined in the Bible. It's basically one word group. Now, using the word word group, I think it's like saying love and lovely and loveliness and that they're all forms of the same word, so that's what's meant by word group. That there's basically one concept. Now, there's a Hebrew word for it. So in the Hebrew Old Testament, there's one primary word used for righteousness. Now, by the way, there are some other words, um, like I was looking at it and I saw righteous in one verse. I I saw the word justice, and then right after that it had the word right. And they were two different words. But um, that was the word right, uh, translated into English as the word right. But the idea of righteousness is basically the same as that same word that was justice um, in that verse. And so let me read a verse here. This is found in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. Okay, speaking of God, he is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Now that, that word right there is the one I was talking about that's actually a different word than the word just there. Uh, the word right's a word in that verse that means straight. Which is how, when you're going to measure things, you you know, if I pull out a ruler and I'm going to measure something, if I have a crooked ruler, <laughs> it's not a good way. It's not a good ruler to measure with. Um, so something that's it, it's highlighting an aspect of God's judgment uh, that He is right when He measures things. It's straight. It's not a crooked measurement. Uh, but the concept uh, in this verse, the word "just" in here is this major idea behind these words: justice and righteousness. Uh, they have that same. Uh, concept uh, in this verse. So notice, by the way, because he is his work is perfect. His, all his ways are judgment. Like everything he does is is in line with this right judgment, this this right thinking. All his ways are in line with his omniscience, his wisdom, truthfulness. His, all as he makes judgments, and all his judgments. Uh, here, uh, they are, he is a God of truth, the verse says, without iniquity, without sin, without getting, without missing the mark in any way, which of course in, sin in the Bible has that aspect of just getting it wrong, 
whether you've done something good or bad isn't necessarily the issue. It's did you get did you hit the mark God wanted you to get? Because you could do something. They say, well, I didn't do anything wrong. Well, like for example, and this isn't going to happen to any of us. Let's just say after church, God said, go shop at Safeway, and you went to Knob Hill. You missed the mark. And if God actually told us, go to Safeway, and we went to Knob Hill, even if you bought what he told you to buy, you just went to the wrong place, you sinned. Because he, he told you what to do, you just didn't quite get it right. Well, I didn't do anything wrong, there's nothing wrong with going to Knob Hill. And I did get you what you wanted. Okay. That's almost, I think, uh, kind of the sin behind uh, Cain. Uh, Cain and Abel. Is, uh, Cain, <clears throat> he came to the Lord and he, he why well, I, I gave you an offering too, Lord. I mean, look at Abel. He gave you a sheep that was the best of his flock. And look at me. I gave you, I gave you the best of my uh, fruits and vegetables. And this should be acceptable to you. Um, I, I honored you. And now, the Bible doesn't say this. I'm, I do a little reading between the lines. And I think there's reason, at least in my mind, why to accept this. Is that there had been something taught to Adam and Eve or... and maybe Adam and Eve, that they would have taught to their kids or maybe revealed to Cain himself, that there were instructions on what a sacrifice should look like. Because uh, that's just consistent with what God does in the Bible. He doesn't hide his requests from us. And then when we disobey them, then he gets upset at us and holds us accountable. I mean, that wouldn't be that great as a parent. Your job's to dust the family room. Except I'm not going to tell you that. Okay, so... You go and dust a different room and, oh, nope, got it wrong. Well, you never told us. That's okay. I don't need to tell you. You got it wrong. Even though I didn't tell you, you're in trouble. You didn't do what I never told you to do. Um, we would probably think that's unreasonable. God doesn't do that. You see it time and time again in the scripture. He says, here's what I'm asking. And he also gives consequences. If you do it, I'm going to bless you. And if you don't do it, you're going to get a curse on you. So he's very consistent that way. So it would seem inconsistent to me with God's character that he got up, uh, he rejected Cain's offering, but he never gave Cain a chance to know what, how he should have done an offering, how he should approach God. Now, of course, we know from Scripture that the concept of a lamb sacrifice was a picture that God unfolds in Scripture uh, that points to the Messiah, to Jesus being the Lamb of God. And so... I suspect, even though the scriptures don't come right out and say it, Cain knew he was told how to approach God with a sacrifice, and he just thought he could do it a little bit differently than that. And uh, sometimes uh, we're that way. Uh, but God's a God without iniquity, this verse, uh, Deuteronomy 32, 4 says. So when all his ways, and I'll read it, he's a rock, his work is perfect. What he does is perfect. All his ways are judgment. A God of truth, without iniquity, he doesn't miss the mark on anything. Just and right is he. He's just, then that's these words. He's righteous, he is just, he gets it right. Now, uh, for me, one of the, I think the uh, easiest ways to remember these is just think of the word righteous, because it's got the word right in there. He always does what's right. A righteous, that's what a righteous person is. A righteous person who's, who does what's right. What does a just person do? Like in a court, when someone seeks justice, they want that judge to make it right. I was wronged. I want justice. Like they stole from me, and uh, I have proof of it. I haul them into court. I'm suing them because they, they took something that didn't belong to me, whatever that is. You know, maybe even a family member 
My brother took the car, but my dad didn't, you know, that was my inheritance. Dad gave that to me, and I want it back. And, you know, I, I want justice. Will the judge avenge me? <laughs> Will the judge give me my car? Um, can, can I have this made right? And so that, that's kind of the idea. When we, we seek justice, we would like to seek things to be made right. Now, of course, in human terms, that often can't happen. Like, for example, if someone lost their life, like a murder, and we want justice, you really can't get it because you can't bring that person back from the dead and make that right again. So no matter what you do to the criminal, um, there's justice in the sense of some sort of a punishment, but you really can't make it up uh, for that. So, But this is God. He's a just God. He does what's right. And... Uh, and so that's who he is. Just and right is he. So when we're told um, you know, that we're supposed to <clears throat> do what's right, in fact, there's a, a phrase, uh, we actually sing a song at the men's retreat that uh, had this in it, just uh, um, do right, it had in the song over and over again. And that's a good uh, thought for us. Okay? So here's what the one commentator says. As a result of God's righteousness... It is necessary that he treat people according to what they deserve. Thus, it is necessary that God punish sin, for it does not deserve reward. It is wrong and deserves punishment. So here's where it comes in practically sometimes in our thinking, is that sometimes we think, well, that's not that big a deal. I think one of the sins in the Bible that can challenge our human thinking um, was what Adam did that was a sin. <clears throat> See, Adam's sin condemned the human race to death and eternity in hell. What was this wicked thing that Adam did that brought on a death sentence? He ate a piece of fruit. <gasps> Say it ain't so. He ate a piece of fruit. No wonder God condemned him to death and the entire human race for such an evil act. Well, in our human thinking, we look at that and say, well, okay, he disobeyed God, which we recognize, might, we might take it a step further, and we might even just point that out. Well, it wasn't a piece of fruit. He, he disobeyed. God said, don't eat a piece of fruit. He ate it. That was wrong. Yeah, he should get punished for that. You know, much like your child who snuck into the cookie jar when they were told not to eat one. But then we still, in our human thinking, even though we recognize it wasn't eating fruit that was a sin, it was disobeying God, we might say, so so what would be a just punishment for that? Hey, Junior, you ate a cookie. Off with your head. Death penalty for you. Because that is the death penalty that Adam got for that sin. And in our human terms, we have a tendency uh, to want to approach God and say... Well, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, and these are just punishments for this or for that, which brings up something that I think we struggle with. What is right? Okay, uh, What ought to happen uh, when someone does something that's wrong? What ought a punishment to be? And so the biblical thinking on this is whatever conforms to God's moral character, that is what is right. So we struggle with this in our society because people have a lot of thoughts about what's right and what's wrong. Um, and they're, in many cases, they are their own judge of that uh, based upon their own worldview, their own thought process, or, or whatever line of thinking they have. 
you know, in, in deciding what's right. Uh, but biblically speaking, God is the ultimate judge of what is considered right. So something that conforms to his character is what is the right thing to do, and something that doesn't is the wrong uh, thing to do. Um, and whenever uh, Scripture confronts the question of whether God himself is righteous or not, okay, here's kind of the answer that comes back from Scripture. We as God's creatures have no right to say that God is unrighteous or unjust. We're not, we are not the ones who determine that. We're not in a position to say to God, you know what? I'm not sure what you did is right. Really, God? The death penalty for Adam? A little over the top there, don't you think? No, the, God doesn't try to justify himself in Scripture. That doesn't mean God never explains what he's thinking or what he does. But the answer tends to come back this way. You don't have the right to judge me. You're not the one that determines these things. I am. And so in our human thinking, we want to do that. We, we have to humble ourselves. Let me give an example of this. This is in the book of Job. And Job had critiqued God a couple times. Now, this is a righteous man. I mean, God bragged on Job quite a bit at the start of Job uh, in his conversation with Satan. Have you thought about my servant Job? There's no one like him. He fears me. He respects me. And he obeys me. In the whole earth, there, there's no one like my servant Job. He was, God was bragging on Job to Satan. Well, that, but Job wasn't perfect, though. And so this righteous man who was godly in low moments of his life, he had questioned God. And in Job chapter 40, uh, the Lord says to Job, shall he that contends or um, debates with or wrestles with the Almighty instruct him? That's a rhetorical question. Are you who are arguing with me? Are you going to be instructing me? Okay. Then he goes on to say in verse 3, then Job, not he, uh, Job answers in verse 3 and says, um, continuing in verses to follow, I, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. I'm going to shut up. Okay. Once I have spoken, so he's thinking back to a past one, I, I, I did speak up once. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer right now. I will not answer. Yea, twice. So he had spoken up more than once and had critiqued God. But I will proceed no further. So he said, I, I already have critiqued God when I shouldn't have. And I'm going to shut up right now and not say anything more to you. And so, um, yeah, I changed my page here. <clears throat> So in verse 6, the Lord says this to him. <clears throat> Skip it ahead in verse 7. Okay, gird up thy loins like a man. Okay, I will demand of these. I want an answer from you. Declare unto me, wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Okay. Are you going to tell me that I'm wrong and that your view's right? You're going to set yourself up as the one who determines righteousness and you're going to disannul my judgment, cancel it out, 
um, condemn me for what I've done? Hast that he goes on in verse 9, hast thou an arm like God? Or canst thou thunder a voice like him? Are you in a position to determine righteousness like I am? And uh, obviously these things are rhetorical here in his rebuke of Job. You had no right to question me on my righteousness and my judgment. But that's our natural tendency. So that's one thing we can walk away with is just being reminded. Let's be careful because all of us want to do that at times. Um, Romans chapter 9 verse 20 in a similar fashion uh, we kind of see this thought where um, God, he doesn't have to justify himself. And so his answer back is, I'm God. And my ways are judgment. My ways are right and just. So in Romans 9, verse 20, uh, Paul says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing form say to him that formed it, Why have you made me thus or this way? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to, lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? And so it's really not our position uh, to question God uh, in his judgments and in his righteousnesses and justice. And again, we go back to it. He is the standard. Okay. We don't go to a ruler that we trust and say, that, that doesn't look quite like an inch. I think an inch is a little bigger than that. Now, unless we have reason to think that ruler is untrustworthy, we usually go to the ruler and pull it out and say, well, I'm eyeballing, I think that looks like an inch to me, but let me get a ruler and see if that's true. And that ought to be our attitude towards the Lord. Okay, well, let's go to our next point on the slide, jealous. Uh, God is a jealous God. And uh, one place that we see this is, I'm going to go to our next slide. I, put, I have the Ten Commandments here. Uh, because it does come up in the Ten Commandments, and I thought, ah, this would be a, a good re excuse to review the Ten Commandments. Why not? <clears throat> okay. And so we'll see, the, but it, with the one of them, we'll see, again, the word uh, jealous come up uh, in this. Uh, but let me um, read definition of jealousy. So what is meant when we say that God is jealous? Because there are some uses of the word that we don't mean when we say that. I'm looking at Oxford uh, language dictionary okay and one um, definition of jealous feeling or showing envy of someone or their achievements uh, or advantages well that's not what's meant by God when he talks about his jealousy he doesn't look at us and say oh man I wish I had that or I'm so envious of those people down there um, that is the first definition that's used here it's probably the most common one amongst people but that's not the definition of jealous as men. He doesn't get envious of us or wish that he had things that we had. Um, so we have to get that definition of jealousy out of our minds. That's not what we mean when we say God is jealous. Uh, here's a second definition in Oxford. Feeling or showing suspicion of someone's unfaithfulness in a relationship, uh, such as being jealous of a spouse. Like you're not sure if they're faithful. So I'm getting jealous. Or I see them... You know, maybe a man's looking at his wife, and she's over there talking to another man, and I'm kind of getting jealous over that. What's going on? And, okay, That's not the definition that would fit God's jealousy either. Okay, The third definition in Oxford is the one that fits what we're talking about here. Okay, Fiercely protective or vigilant of one's rights or possessions. 
Now they give an example in here. Um, their example, um, Howard is still a little jealous of his authority. So, I saw in another dictionary, they talked about, I think it was like the original colonies here in the U.S., they talked about them being jealous of certain freedoms that they had. Okay. Protective. And so that's more, I think, what would fit um, our uh, thought here on God being jealous. And so um, it goes back to those points we had. You know, God's, God's a God who has a right to certain things. In fact, we see some of them in the Ten Commandments here. One column, which reminds us, I, I ordered it this way because it reminds me of Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, um, when Jesus was asked, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so even in the Ten Commandments, we can see them hang on these two things. Four of the commandments, love God. And six of the commandments, love other people. And so those first four, uh, if you love God, then he's your God. You don't have other gods taking his place, whatever those might happen to be. Um, so uh, let me uh, pull up. Um, I'll actually read the verses here. These are just the kind of my really brief so I could fit it on a PowerPoint. I am the Lord thy God, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Commandment number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, am, I the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity or the sins of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So that was Exodus uh, chapter 3, uh, sorry, chapter 20, verses 3 through 6. But he says in there, identify, I'm a jealous God. I have the right to worship. I have the right to be the only God in your life, and I'm jealous about that. I, I, I'm protective of my rights. Okay, But then, for the sake of uh, our being able to review the Ten Commandments here. Uh, we could go on and read, and I won't read all of them, that we're told to not take the name of the Lord in vain. Respect God's name. Why? He deserves respect. Okay? Remember the Sabbath day. Why? It's a commemorating of the seventh day when God rested. Now, we won't get off of that. Why aren't we meeting yesterday instead of today? Sabbath day being the seventh day of the week. But you see in the New Testament, the quick answer is, the New Testament Christians provided... Uh, an example of meeting on the first day of the week after the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and so a new day to commemorate. The first one, God rested at the end of creation. The second one, the first day of the week, Jesus rose on the first day. Uh, so there's reason from the scriptures why we're meeting on Sunday instead of Saturday. Um, but uh, still, if you have a love for God, this is how you treat him. You give him this kind of respect and honor um, that's here. And uh, all the commandments hang on that uh, first and greatest commandment to love God. And then 
you have these, a uh, second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And so you love your neighbor, meaning the people around you, not just the person who lives next door. Well, then show your parents respect and honor. And don't kill other people. And don't, um, don't commit acts with other people that are not good for them or good for you. Okay? And, of course, adultery specifically with your spouse uh, definitely not good for them. A breaking of vows and a harming of relationship and a disrespect towards them and a, and a lack of love towards them uh, in that process. And don't steal things that belong to them. And don't lie about them. And don't desire the things that they have. That doesn't, uh, the word covet doesn't mean that you don't think what they have is pretty cool. Well, that's a pretty nice truck you just bought. I can't afford a truck like that. That's pretty cool. I'm happy for you. Good for you. I'm glad the Lord allowed you to enjoy that. Well, that's just admiring the truck and, and saying, hey, I wouldn't mind if the Lord let me have one of those someday. That's not coveting. Coveting is, why did that dirty rat get to be the one with that truck? I wish that was my truck. Um, and you get this, cov- it's, it's a desire to have something that you really don't have the right to desire. I desire to have your truck not my truck. I don't care. I wish I had it anyways. Which is mine. Wish that happened to me. Um, and so th- these aren't love for neighbor. I'm not happy for him. Thank the Lord that God blessed him in that way. No. Why didn't God bless me that way? I don't care about his well-being. I'll lie about him, you know. Um, and so anyways, um, we have uh, here, I thought that was a good review, but how did we get off on that? because of God's jealousy and what God has a right to on that. All right, I'm looking at the time, and I'm going to, uh, I think, just have enough time to get in one more. So I'm going to advance the slide. Back to the character of God. And just the first point on the slide, uh, the word wrath so when we think about this, the, the Bible has a lot to say about God having wrath on creation. Now give me a moment here as I'm trying to get, uh, there we go, get myself organized. I lost track of where in the notes uh, this was at. Okay, So um, let me quote something here as we think about this, because I think it ties nicely to what we've already been talking about. So that's why I want to do the first one on the next slide. It should not be surprising that God would hate everything that is opposed to the moral, his own moral character. God's wrath against sin is therefore closely related to God's holiness and justice. God's wrath may be defined as follows. God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. The human problem, um, I think, is with our sin nature. We don't hate all sin. Therefore, sometimes when God seems to overreact to a sin, it's because we ourselves don't really hate that sin uh, the way that he does. Uh, We don't shrink back from all sin. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, which I suspect we are, I think we all recognize this weakness, there are some sins we've actually enjoyed. um, uh, And that's where television can be one of those venues by which we can 
enjoy a sin that we know, well, you wouldn't be right. I, I shouldn't do that. But we can actually enjoy getting to see that. Um, we have that natural tendency. In fact, um, Moses recognized this. I forget which book of the Bible it is. I want to say it's the book of Hebrews. Uh, it says he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, meaning it wouldn't have lasted that long. But Moses looked at some of the advantages of sin, and there, there would have been some fun in that. Um, he, but he made a right choice. Uh, but for him, the choice was between, okay, doing what's wrong, which is going to be consequences, but there would have been a little bit of fun in that that would have lasted for a little bit. Um, we have that natural tendency. Um, so uh, perhaps, uh, you know, like if I go back, uh, you know, kind of thinking about that, you know, like different things to eat. I already talked about if you put a drop of water on there. But sometimes I think we view uh, maybe sin in different degrees. Like, okay, we think of sin as something that's bad, but sometimes a sin's bad for one person, but maybe not so bad for another. Like, do you like to eat broccoli? Some people are like, yeah, no, that's bad. I'm, I'm repulsed by that. And, um, so I wouldn't want to eat that. Um, but that, that's not really, you know, the way God would view sin. as something that actually could be good for you, yet maybe, you know, is a little repulsive to him, or, or even going to something that, we think of broccoli as regular food, but maybe going to something that maybe is food for some parts of the world, but we wouldn't want to eat, like a, a good locust, or you know, a cockroach, or something like that. And we might say, mm, I'm not going to eat that, that's kind of disgusting. Um, what if it was just something that was disgusting to everyone? I mean, God views sin as that's, that, that's offensive, period. Would you like to eat a nice, fresh bowl of doggy doo? There's no one on the planet that would eat that one. That's just vile at the start. And it's not just vile to some, it's vile to everyone. And, and so I think sometimes we, again, we can tolerate sin because it may not be uh, that complete uh, vileness. And so, um, let's see. Okay, I think I'm going to use that as a, a good stopping point, except I'll just kind of summarize wrath this way. God, God has a right to not be happy with sin. And if you go back to his justice, would it, would it be okay, would we be okay with a judge in Hollister who let a crime go by? Because he decided that, well, yeah, you know, I'm not going to worry about that one. We would expect him to enforce the law and would expect him to be seeking righteousness or justice in that situation. Because that would say, well, your neighbor stole from you, but I think normally he's a good guy and probably just gave in to temptation. But I, I kind of feel bad to give him a punishment at this point. I don't want any mark on his record. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to let this one slide. I'm not going to view it that way. Uh, I'm going to let him off this time. But, I mean, the evidence is clear. He stole. He took your property. If I make an official judgment that he's guilty, that's going to go on his record. No, okay. I'm just not going to do that uh, to him because he's a nice guy. He normally does what's right. So I'm letting him off. Uh, we, we would not see that as a good thing for a judge. And, and nor should we with God uh, that we feel like um, he you know, shouldn't enforce things that are wrong, following his moral code, his righteousness, his justice.